Hi, this is Bob Rosakis. You're listening to the Batman Family Reunion on the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Welcome to the Batman Family Reunion, a proud part of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm Sean M. Myers, one of your hosts, and with me is my co-host and bat cousin, Paul Keene. How are you doing, Paul? Sean, I am doing great. It's been a very exciting month. I actually learned how to make Caesar salad from Uncle Caesar himself. Wait till you taste it. It is fantastic. How about you? How are you doing? I'm great. Thanks. I just got done talking with Uncle Rhino, who gave me a book about rhinos. So that was really <laughs> great of him. And it was even better that he didn't bring along a dish that was made out of rhinos. <laughs> we want to also welcome our special guest for this episode, Dan Greenfield of the 13th Dimension, Welcome to the reunion, Dan. I hope you brought something good to eat. I certainly did. Thank you for having me. I didn't have time to cook, but I did stop by Ernie's Chinese restaurant on my way over. And I, and I brought a big platter, a poo platter. I brought some wonton soup, some mm. sub-gum chicken chow mein, and fortune cookies. <laughs> nice touch. Yeah, well, I mean, the restaurant's been there since 1976. It's got to be good, right? Unlike Signal Man, you stick to a theme. <laughs> glad to have you, Dan. I'm really, really glad to be here. First off, any chance that I, that I get to invite myself on someone's podcast to talk about things I love are great moments. But in particular, this is a key comic book in my bat upbringing. And so when the opportunity came, there was no way I was letting go. I was like, no, no, no. I'll have to drive out to Lancaster if I need to, to make sure <laughs> nobody else gets to talk about this issue. <laughs> Paul, what do you want to tell the folks at home about the show? Well, I hope people know by now, but Batman Family was a DC comic that ran for 20 issues from 1975 to 78. And then it rescued Detective Comics from the DC implosion by continuing on as a dollar comic for 15 more issues until 1980. The title started out with new features starring Batgirl and Robin, along with reprints before morphing into all new stories starring the other members of the Batman family, such as the Huntress, Commissioner Gordon, Man Bat, and even Elongated Man and the Human Target. Both of your hosts collected and read these comics as they came out and are excited to share their love of this era at the Batman family reunion. So Dan, as we mentioned, we're super excited to have you on the show. Please tell us your secret of origin with comics, but more importantly about your relationship to the Batman family. How did you get into the book? Who's your favorite family member? Why this issue so special to you? Have at it. Oh, wow. Well, I mean, my, I got into comics as you know, most people of what I presume is our, our generation here. With, uh, the Adam West TV show, that was my gateway. This was early 70s you know, syndication. Mm-hmm. I was like maybe four or five years old. Eventually, somewhere in there, comics entered into it. And I have early memories of comics. Like, for example, I remember the, the, two, the two books that I remember seeing on spinner racks were Batman number 237 and Detective number 406, I think it is. And at different times, but right around the same period. Again, I don't know if these were when they came out or if they've been on racks for a little bit, but the point being is that those are my earliest inkling that comic books were different from the TV show because the covers were both had Batman in like, you're never getting out of this kind of situations. Whereas even as a kid, I knew that Batman on TV always gets out of the trap that's it's not a matter of if it's a matter of how and it's the how that was always the most entertaining but the comics on the other hand i was like wait this is this is a little different batman looks kind of scary and this is these you know so i was drawn to that of course it was neil adams did both covers Mm. i couldn't have told you that at the time you know the old cliche about the moms who give away baseball cards and comic book collections much to their kids chagrin i as it turned out was the recipient 
of that cliche. Yeah. So, so friends of my parents, we were visiting them one night and they knew I was into Batman and they're like, well, Hey, look, we've got a stack of comics in my son's closet, you know, on the floor of my son's closet, stack of comics. Would you like them? (laughs) I didn't know what to say because it was like, this wasn't, you know, this wasn't a holiday. It wasn't my birthday. And I'm like, (laughs) yeah, are you sure? And I even remember thinking, are you sure he's going to want to get rid of them? Because <laughs> I, I had to have been five, maybe. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like, now, of course, he, he made to this very day resent his mother for this 50 <laughs> years later. But that was really also how I got into back issues, Silver Age comics. So there's a lot of stuff there from the 60s and early 70s. And by that time, that was really kind of set me down the road. Migos, filmation, cartoons the rest of it. And it all just kind of built until really when, by the time 1979 rolled around, that's really when I decided, okay, I'm going to try to get this every month. Because up to that point, I wasn't even clear on the idea that they came out every month. It was just like, well, whenever I went to the store, I would see what comics they had. It was just, that's how my mind worked. Batman Family was in the middle of all of that. My first issue of Batman Family was actually number two, which at the time I didn't even realize was all reprints, reprints yeah. but I loved it. Like this idea of Batgirl and Robin kind of teaming up against Batman and the, the backstories are great. And then at some point, I think it was the same because this was this would have been most likely the first comic book store I ever went to. And then I went back another time and they had the earlier issue, the number one, which kind of blew my mind. Oh, <laughs> this is different. And I was in love with that. I've had the fortune at 13th Dimension of interviewing Bob Rosakis and doing a series on Batman Family, which I consider to be pound for pound, the most entertaining, consistently entertaining Bat book of the 1970s. Now, it's not fair because you don't have as many issues to compare. There's not as much chance for failure. And I just think that it hit its mark time and time and time again, whether we were talking about the inclusion of reprints or whether it's all original material it is incredibly entertaining especially when Bob Rosakis really kind of rolled up his sleeves which is where we're at here for me the highlight the ultimate was the trilogy of Joker's Daughter stories Mm. so to be able to talk about the finale where it's the kitchen sink is just I'm over the moon that's awesome yeah that's a great story how about your favorite Bat family member Mm, I mean my default is Robin but really when it comes to Batman family itself it's Robin and Batgirl teams those stories to me I think they crackle there was something about the way all of the writers handled that relationship that really gave it a depth and gave both characters a certain sensibility that they didn't have necessarily in their solo stories. They mm-hmm. played off each other exceptionally well. And at the same time, you know, as a, as a boy, of course, I had a crush on Batgirl too. <laughs> so, you know, the fact that Dick Grayson kind of, you know, there was this will they, won't they thing. I was totally into that. <laughs> I was totally into the idea. And, I, and in my head, I would try to figure out, well, what about this age difference thing? Remember, I'm like 10 years old. And even I knew that, yeah, that doesn't really work, I don't think. But it, nevertheless, I thought it was a really cool idea. And of course, that's touched upon throughout the series. And, and this is very much a part of that. Just the whole notion of all of these villains' daughters, that's just good comic books. I, I don't care. It's not going to change your life. It's not going to you know make you see the world in a different way. But it's going to entertain the hell out of you. And it did for me. And to this day, it entertains me. Bob Rosakis knew how to make comics fun. Yes, he did. What a better title to introduce the villain's daughters 
than Batman Family. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure what went through his head, and hopefully we get a chance to ask him, is you got Batman Family, now you're bringing the villains family, right? I mean, that right. has to be where this whole idea came from. Brilliant. And I'm with you. I read it as it was coming out. I mentioned to Sean on the last episode. It's been probably over five years since the last time I read these, or not longer. And like in my head, I had the Joker's daughter story going six or seven issues. Well, <laughs> this epic. Yeah, yeah it, it felt that way in its own in its own way. You know, I did ask him about it about the Joker's daughter. I did a piece on it a number of years ago that I've kind of brought back to the surface from time to time. And the whole thing started. It was just the idea of the Joker's daughter. Actually, you know, why don't I just read his quote? He says, "Julie Schwartz and I were talking about the fact that Robin didn't really have any regular enemies. In fact, over his entire career, I think the closest he ever got was he had crazy." quilt back in the 40s <laughs> so we were just batting it around and thought well what if it was somebody that was like a spin-off of one of the villains and since robin is really a spin-off of batman we came up with the idea of the joker's daughter and then once we had done that it was okay we've established her as a character but what if she's not really the joker's daughter and the next time she comes back pretending to be the daughter of one of the other villains and i guess he was getting carried away so that by the third installment and he's pitching it to schwartz and schwartz is like okay that's enough <laughs> you've, you've, you've had your fun i get it wrap you up wrap the story. It up. I'm, I'm gonna give you a full-length story but you gotta wrap it up now because <laughs> i could just imagine each one of these riddler scare i've been it could have been a great like six-part series or five-part series but it still does it justice and getting batgirl in there too and especially some of even the tiny little parts where Lori elton is just a little bit jealous of barbara showing oh, up on oh, her oh wait till uh, we get to that part we, oh my god <laughs> Again, it comes back to that whole idea of making comics entertaining, interesting, dramatic without taking themselves so seriously that you want to jump off a bridge after reading. (laughs) And and that's what I really, really appreciate about this era and Batman family. Well, thanks for sharing that, man. That was really great. Shall we move ahead, Sean? We will. We're going to talk about the cover of Batman Family number nine. The cover date is January, February 1977. The release date is October 21st, 1976. It's a 48-page count with a cover price of 50 cents, and there is one new story and two reprints. And the cover artist is Ernie Chan, who is also Ernie Chua. What do you guys think of the cover? Dan, do you want to start? Yeah, I love it. I think it's one of the best covers of the series. It's interesting because at this point, Robin had been Joker's daughter's, you know, foil. But here now it's Batgirl. Batgirl versus the Joker's daughter. Robin coming up from the background while two women are going at it. Of course, you can't have a 1970s fight between women characters without some hair pulling. (laughs) (laughs) I noted that too. Bit of a cat fight here, you know? Right, exactly. I mean, you get one good swift kick to the abdomen. You get a good karate chop to the neck. But then at the same time, Batgirl's grabbing Joker's daughter's hair. Of course, we should know that that is a wig and probably should come off her easily, but it doesn't. The jawline keeps it in place. Yeah, 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 right. So, yeah. Very good. But also even just the cell on the left, you know, co-starring the Dynamite Duo, Batgirl and Rob, as if the Joker's daughter weren't enough about to be the Scarecrow's daughter, the Riddler's daughter, the Penguin's daughter, and Batgirl basically telling Robin to buzz off and, you know, I got this covered. It promises so much. There's virtually no background except for the really cool kind of Carmine Infantino-ish skyscrapers in the background cityscape mm-hmm. in the background but you don't need it all you need is the images of the two of them wailing on each other and the promise of what's inside and they don't even advertise the fact that they've got backups in this issue either mm-hmm. Jeanette Kahn and Sean up by 
this time. And she's like, what are these reprints of which you speak? Let us bring them all new material. But I think they were starting to move away from advertisement, even though there are two really solid reprints of the story. Sean, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> I am. Listeners, cousins, shout it out with me. It's a boxless cover. No Yay! box. Yay! No boxless. <laughs> I am totally with you on that whole thing. I will mention that on occasion at the site. Only a few artists have ever I think, really made the box work. Gil Kane, I think, was the best of them when he did the box at, at Marvel, mostly. But by and large, I think it just made the images too small. And the only time it worked for me really was Justice League. So, because at least you had the floating heads down yeah. the left-hand side. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. those I love. So that, ad, that added value. But yeah, the fact that it's a big, bright image. And and I, I know that this is something you've touched on before, but I, can I just say quickly, I love the Batman family logo because the main part of the logo is probably my favorite Batman logo of all time. And they repurpose it in such a way that it just, it works. So I just want to throw that in there. At this point, Batman stories weren't part of the issues. And like Batman himself doesn't really show up. Which I loved about the book. I love the fact that Batman- That is a way to bring Batman in. He's literally front and center every cover. So you know that it is his family. So he is included somewhat. How about you, Paul? What are your thoughts that we already haven't covered? Yeah, not much more to say. This is Ernie Chan's last Batman family cover. And so because of that, I did want to do a little spotlight on him for Bat Family history. You know, I always wondered, I knew he was Ernie Chan, Ernie Chua. What's going on with that? Why does he have two names? All that kind of stuff. So I did do a little research. I found a neat interview from 2009. As Sean knows, Dan, I always like to get actual quotes from the folks themselves. So anyway, he was born in the Philippines in 1940. He was legally named Ernie Chua due to what he called a typographical error on my birth certificate. So he was supposed to be Ernie Chan, but ended up being Ernie Chua. So he emigrated to the U.S. in 1970 and worked under the name Chua and did not have a chance to change it until he changed it to Chan when, quote, I got my U.S. citizenship in 76, right around now. So pretty soon he's going to start using Ernie Chan. He entered the American comics industry in 72 with DC as a a penciler on some horror and mystery titles, such as Ghosts and House of Mystery and stuff like that. He says, you know, what made him decide to get into it? He says, well, that's what I've been doing back in the Philippines, illustrating local comics for eight years before migrating to the USA in 1970. I always loved to draw since I was a kid. He was mostly self-taught, observing and imitating other artists' styles that appealed to me and a lot of practice and hard work. Were you part of Tony DiZanega's uh, so-called Filipino invasion? He says, I apprenticed for Tony back in the Philippines for a couple of years. Tony came over to the USA a year or so ahead of me. So I looked him up and apprenticed for him again for several months. Then I went on my own. You can say the Filipino invasion was initiated by Tony and me. So that was that was cool. I didn't cool. quite realize that. From 75 to 76, Chan worked exclusively for DC, including the artwork for Claw the Unconquered, uh, written by David Michelini. While working on Detective Comics, he drew the first appearance of Captain Stingery and the first appearance of Black Spider, which we talked about a couple episodes ago. And under the name Chua, he was DC Comics' primary cover artist from about 75 to 77. The cover to this issue of Batman Family was one of the last dozen or so he did for DC. If you look on Mike's Amazing World, you'll see that after this, it's pretty much all Marvel. So from the interview... I like doing covers way better than working on interiors. In interiors, you have to deal with the six panels on average and tons of captions and dialogues. While in the covers, I just leave a third top of the portion for the, of the space for the logo and stuff. 
And sometime, if I'm lucky, I can overlap my design over a part of the logo. So Chan worked for Marvel, too, obviously, and penciled several issues of Conan, Doctor Strange, worked on Cull the Destroyer and Power Man and Iron Fist. From about 1978 onward, he worked almost exclusively for Marvel and focused on Conan in the 1980s. The interviewer asked him, you worked on both Claw the Unconquered and Conan. Was Claw basically a knockoff of Conan? And he says, yes, I agree that Claw was a knockoff of Conan at the beginning. But if Claw had been given a longer run, I was pretty sure it would have branched off into something all its own. So good for him. Other tidbits, the interviewer said, you've got an impressive list of credits and worked on everything from Batman to Swamp Thing with stops on Westerns, War Bucks, and Superheroes. What was the most enjoyable? Actually, I'm challenged every time I encounter a new character, but I enjoy Batman the most, and I think that represents my best work. So I thought that was interesting. And he said, yes, about how Marvel and DC compared. He says, for me, it's like comparing apples and oranges. At DC, I'm more of a penciler, while at Marvel, I'm more of an inker. But when the interviewer said, do you have a preference between full script and Marvel method? He said, well, with the full script, the writer dominates the storytelling. With the Marvel method, I have more flexibility in the story breakdowns. I prefer the latter. And then for our back cousin, Rob McCarthy, the interviewer also asked him, <laughs> you worked on almost the entire run of the Joker book. Was that an interesting assignment? He said, oh, yeah, the Joker was and still the best villain character for Batman. In the early 1990s, he joined Sega, providing character designs for art and video games, such as Eternal Champions. I'm not familiar with that one. Did you know Eternal Champions? either you guys um and in 2002 he retired except for some commissioned artwork he passed away in 2012 from cancer a great career according to mike's he had almost 400 story credits with over 8600 pages of artwork i'm just glad to know a little bit more about him. so thanks for the opportunity to do that thanks a lot and you can see this beautiful cover as well as some additional pages from each of the stories in our family portrait gallery on the network's website paul remind our listeners where is that that is fireandwaterpodcast.com. Ready to move on to the first story? Absolutely. All right. The first story starring Batgirl and Robin entitled The Startling Secret of the Devilish Daughters. 17 pages written by Bob Rosakis, penciled extremely well by Irv Novik, inked by Vince Coletta, and reprinted a bunch of places. Batgirl, the greatest stories ever told. Batgirl, a celebration of 50 years. Teen Titans, Bronze Age Omnibus. Batgirl, Bronze Age Omnibus. Robin, Bronze Age Omnibus. <laughs> and Batman Arkham Joker's daughter, trade paperback. Anyway, Batgirl and Robin in the startling secret of the devilish daughters. So our favorite congresswoman, Babs Gordon, is coming to New Carthage to get an award from her fans at Hofstra, I mean Hudson University, <laughs> for being the, quote, best freshman congresswoman. Of course, Dick and Lori are there with the rest of the kids to greet her. But when Bab plants a kiss on Dick's cheek to say hi, Lori makes sure to mention, ahem, Ms. Gordon, I'm Lori Elton, Dick's girlfriend. <laughs> but then they're pelted with tomatoes and eggs by protesters. And we find out that HU has anti-political activists on campus, whatever that is. Police Chief Uncle Frank is called in and tells our heroes that Babs' plaque has been stolen. Dip ditches Lori and Babs, much to Lori's consternation, to investigate his Robin, but he gets nowhere. Later on, Babs starts her speech, but soon the kids run from the hall screaming. Turns out we have a visit from Scarecrow's daughter. She and Bad Girl have it out in a great fight scene by Irv Novik. But suddenly Scarecrow's daughter says, hold it, I don't want to fight you, and throws her mask off to reveal that she is the Joker's daughter. She runs away, but we see her thoughts. Oh, how I miss thought balloons. <laughs> this didn't lure Robin out, and that eliminates all my suspects but one. Oh no, has the Joker's daughter discovered Robin's secret ID? Our ladies' man Dick escorts both Lori and Babs to lunch the next day when the Riddler's daughter shows up. 
leaving a fortune cookie for Dick entitled A Riddle for Robin. Dick ditches the girls again, and Robin heads into the kitchen where somehow he mistakes her for Edward Nigma. <laughs> but this scene does give Bob Rizakis a chance to show his continuity cred since Riddler was just in last month's issue of Batman. Anyway, the pair make a mess of the restaurant while Babs giggles. Of course, it is the Joker's daughter again, but after she escapes, Robin realizes she has stolen his mask. Uh-oh. So later on, when Babs is finally going to get her award, it turns out the Joker's daughter is not the culprit of the plaque theft. Remember that? Anyway, it was a regular old protester who was right on page one with the Gordon go home sign. You think Uncle Frank should have questioned that guy? Anyway, to add all of this, the Penguin's daughter shows up now for no apparent reason. So she doesn't steal anything. <laughs> Robin and Batgirl do a Rockettes move, really, to relieve her of her dangerous umbrella. Batgirl recovers the precious plaque while Robin unmasks her as the Joker's daughter once again. But she says, this makes us even. I know who you are, Richard Grayson. But Dick has the upper hand as he indicates he knows her secret ID too. Dwella Dent, the daughter of Two-Face. We wrap up her story with Babs getting her award, the protester headed off to jail, and Dick and Dwella meeting on the campus in their civilian attire. We find out that Dwella has no evil motive. She wanted to deduce Robin's secret ID to show she has what it takes to be a superhero. She wants to make up for her father's misdeeds and asks Dick to nominate her for membership in the Teen Titans to be continued in the Teen Titans. Wow. Dan, Sean, I'm wiped out. You guys got to go. Dan, what'd you think? It's great. It is great mid-1970s comic book. So little of it makes any sense. <laughs> <laughs> except for narrative sense with the idea that it is just, it's fun. In the first splash page where you have Batgirl and Robin being besieged by four people who are really one people, just a total, <laughs> metaphor, total metaphorical page, but it's a great way of starting the, the issue. And then, then it just gets started by the bottom of page one, they're getting pelted with rocks and garbage. <laughs> so, I mean, it's like, it's like, all right, we're already off to the races here. Robin's got his silly fan. You've got the scarecrow makes her appearance. It is just one thing after another. It's just one great scene of the fake villains. And then, of course, the nonsensical payoff that it's Two-Face's daughter, where there have been zero clues to this point <laughs> that get us there. It is a real deus ex machina ending. And then, of course, what happens, if you were anything like me when I read this, I was both blown away and completely baffled by how this could be Two-Face's daughter. <laughs> because the ages... I mean, I know the selective aging in comic, but it makes no, there's, there's nothing here that you can, there's no way that, that, that this trigonometry works. <laughs> and it was the kind of thing that I would obsess over as a kid, because I used to keep little lists of roughly how old each character was in the Batman. Oh, nice. And what their birth dates would be and what years they were born. <laughs> and, and I I did pronounce it like you, Duella. I don't know, maybe some people pronounce I, it Duella. Sometimes I say Duella, sometimes Duella. I'm not exactly. I always, I always thought Duella. it was Duella, yeah. I always try to figure, where does she fit in? because he didn't become Two-Face until after Robin became Robin. So how can they be the same age? It makes no sense. He would have to be 12 years older. And if he was that young when they had her, why would he have named her Dwella? <laughs> right. Well, that was the other thing. Right? Why would he even do that if he hadn't been Two-Face yet? He would have named her Harry, Jane, Mildred, whatever you named kids in the 30s. I'm so ashamed because it didn't come to me until 
she points it out in the new Teen Titans wedding. <laughs> yes, like, I, I know. Never I know. And, and then she's back. way older. And then she's, right, she's way older. older. Right. And then she just kind of leaves him slack jaw. And she's <laughs> like, he's like, he's like, well, how does this work? And she's like, I'll tell you another time. So, I mean, you're still getting that gag keeps on going. There are so many different things that I love in going through. I know this is going to sound weird, but I love comic book stories that take place in Chinese restaurants. It's because, because when, when I was a kid, Chinese food was my favorite food. Ma, can we have Chinese food? Ma, can, I mean, I probably asked every day, Ma, can we get Chinese food? And I always knew she was a soft touch on Friday nights. So Friday nights was usually Chinese food night. So the idea of them going out for dinner, which is another thing that I loved about comics then, is that they, they did give the alter egos real life things to do. Like, yeah, we love that in this too. Yeah. That's- yeah. And it's and and they give them that other side where they're like people, they're just regular people who happen to dress up in silly outfits and beat the tar out of whatever villains they're encountering that month. But other than that, they're just like you and me. Mm-hmm. So the idea that they're in a Chinese restaurant and all of this, and you know, the, the name of the restaurant is no longer what would be considered politically correct, but the sentiments there, and you know, you get not only do you get the different villains and the different weapons. But I also love the fact that she she's somehow able to get his mask, and his solution is to cut a new mask. Oh my god! Out of a paper towel in the men's room of Ernie's uh, restaurant, even though Lieutenant Tatum was like giving him a hard time, saying, hey, "What is this new fashion in masks?" <laughs> I love it. I love yeah, it. It is absolutely great. Anytime like a costume appeared and it was different like in story that always fascinated me even if the top thing of his tunic was undone or whatever yeah. or like a, when marshall rogers got his hands yeah. yeah yeah, yeah. Marshall rogers did that. Kind of, george yeah. perez did that a lot too yeah 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 so how about you sean any general comments one thing is what well, maybe this should be in the beat by beat but you said it i had never noticed so obviously i've been reading this since you know it came out but i never realized that the guy who stole the plaque is the guy who has the protest sign. I never, ever noticed that before. So that's fantastic. Glad I could be of service there, cousin, yes, cousin Sean. And then my other stuff, I'll save for beat for beat. As we go yeah, I mean, it. I love at the beginning, I and mean, we mentioned it a little bit, when Lori meets Babs. So this was part of what you were talking about, Dan, earlier, is this interpersonal relationship we know there's something not supposed to happen with dick and babs and Lori is his girlfriend and she's like uh <clears throat> what are you doing kissing on my man there congress lady i just think that was great and then she's mad when he takes off in his groovy van her face richard on the third page there <laughs> i love that expression right there i think that's great irv novick does a great job this issue really really yeah sean i don't know about you but i thought babs's outfits were relatively conservative this month there's no green there's no green yeah <laughs> <laughs> I think it's funny that all the kids start running away and Babs doesn't know why when there's a giant scarecrow in the right behind her. Yeah, it never says in the story that she realizes why they left, what's going on. Yeah, because she's I don't know what caused it. I'm like, did you look behind you? <laughs> I thought that was funny. But let's talk about that fight sequence with Batgirl and the Scarecrow. I mean, it starts on page after the ad where Scarecrow tries to squeeze her with, instead of fear gas, she's got fear perfume. I thought you'd yeah. like that, Sean. With the- fear number five. <laughs> I love it. And she says, I don't scare easy, especially when I hold my breath. You'd think all of the bat heroes would learn that when they're fighting the scarecrow to hold their breath. You'd think that would be a good one. But this fight sequence is really something else. It's pretty rough. I don't know if you guys have any thoughts on that. Now, now there's no background in the next bit, but I really dig the next panel on takes up two thirds of the page. I think that is so well done. And especially from a coloring perspective, because mm-hmm. like you have the main image, which is in the center, 
But then you have four fight scenes off to the sides. And in each of them, Batgirl is in all yellow. Scarecrone is in all blue. But I know we'll get to the end of this, but the page before where Scarecrone kicks Babs in the face, Batgirl in the face. I think that is something horrible. And I think that is a crime. I don't think that's just stealing the CAT off of a building. That's assault. That's felony assault. (laughs) Yeah. That's jail time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, I'm sure whatever reason, Babs decided not to press charges and all that because she's doing this to be a superhero. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) But then she's like, I don't want any part of this. I love that part. She's just like, yeah, cut and run. And she just runs away. And Babs is so startled that she can't chase her. Yeah, she's shocked. <laughs> so then they go to the lunch at Tony's restaurant and Dick gets the fortune cookie, which now we know she knows his ID, right? So that's like, I mean, 10-year-old Paul was like, whoa, <laughs> what? I mean, that just didn't happen. No. I mean, it was a big deal. And Sean and I talked about it, issue number three, when they Dick and Babs learned each other's secret ID, that was a big deal. This is even worse. A villain has learned? Oh my gosh. Yeah, that didn't, and through deductive reasoning wasn't like yeah yeah trap where they ripped his yeah. mask off i mean you think that. about it it's like okay we know robin was in gotham now he's at hudson university how many kids approximately his age are from gotham that are at hudson university what's well, one trip to the registrar's office uh, <laughs> the cover of night to figure it out and then you eliminate them one by one it was brilliant right i mean very logical i love that i also like the fact that in most of these stories when that did that that sort of thing did happen villain either would have their mind erased or have get whacked in the head or right. they'd fall off a cliff. <laughs> right. Yeah. And right. here it's like, it ends with, I mean, not to jump too far ahead, she did figure it out and that holds. But I do want to make that point when they're walking in and Dick is wearing this suave turtleneck. And his oh jacket. yeah. Oh yeah. But he's got both Lori and Barbara on his arms. Yeah. <laughs> his arm, I mean, he's like, I, I think he had his high karate on that day. Yeah. <laughs> He's, he's drawn the ladies. And I love Barbara's actress's script. Like, I actually love the line, a duck into the men's room and out comes a robin who flies <laughs> into the kitchen to find, I love that. Great stuff. So then the Riddler revolvers, which just kind of pelt him. They're real period pieces. I thought that was good. Yeah. <laughs> And then what's great on the next page, Babs is laughing away. She's having a great time watching Dick fight her. I just think that's a riot. This, again, not life-threatening stakes. She's like, ah, this, let me just sit back and watch. This is his fight. Yeah. I just think that's fantastic. And it's great that the mask itself is booby-trapped. Yes. Yeah. We're used to that, man. If a villain gets his mask, like there's a yep. shock. Now she decided that she's going to booby-trap her mask. Kaboom. And so then he's sick. He runs in the bathroom. He's like, oh no, she got my mask. And then the infamous cutting of the mask with the bat scissors. <laughs> he must have the scissors in his utility belt, I guess. By the way, Sean, Lieutenant Rick Tatum shows up. Remember how we were like, we don't know where we ever, he got one of those little text boxes. An, an info box. Yeah. And here he is. He's here. So <laughs> he's actually here in the Rosakis verse. I don't know what the point was of the can-can line, but that's pretty fun. Uh, you're talking about when they decide to do a can-can kick to get rid of yeah. the- <laughs> no sense it's just plain silly yeah i'm looking at this and i'm like why would they do this yeah one and a two when it's totally unnecessary they're just showing off at this point. yeah but that's okay i think that's what it was i think they're yeah. just showing it's off fine. yeah yeah and i could understand if the story was like someone stole someone's tony award <laughs> or you know it, it, or it took place in a theater but it doesn't really tie into any of the story points you know something sean they do say an hour later at the hudson university playhouse so maybe this is uh, uh okay and there's curtains there and everything. So maybe that's, that's it. it. Yeah. 
Oh, and there's the boom microphone. Yeah. Yeah. A little. Okay. So we figured that mystery out. So I have to ask the elephant in the room. How the heck did Robin figure out the Joker's daughter is dual dent? Are there any clues in any of the stories? Not a single. No. <laughs> okay. I just want to make sure that's all. That always bothered me. He knew because he knew she wasn't really the Joker's daughter. Right. And if she's not these other people, then who's left? Now, of course, <laughs> there's also 15 different people he could have chosen. But he decided to stick with the A-list. He already knew who Razal Ghul's daughter was. Yeah, true. So <laughs> she's okay. out of the running. All right. So by process of elimination. By process of elimination, she was going to be Mr. Freeze's daughter or Harvey uh, Dent's daughter. Actually, I think I have cracked that mystery. Robin looked at the Batman treasury with the four bat spotlights with the villains. <laughs> oh, yes. And the other three were taken. Right. So Two-Face was the it. only one. That must be it. That must be it. That must be it. Great ending. Again, this was another... When I was a kid, like, what? She's going to be in the Teen Titans? I just thought that was awesome. Yeah, I agree. I love that. And that is cool because it is, quote unquote, like DC Universe. Like, it, mm-hmm. it's spooling out into another. And and they were great at that. And especially, like, Nelson Bridwell and Super Friends would always talk about stuff that was going on in Robin's life mm-hmm. from Batman Family and Teen Titans. I mm-hmm. love that. Yep, absolutely. I mean, I actually don't think that the character, once she went to Teen Titans, it lost something when she was Harley Quinn. And I think they had a hard time kind of figuring out what they wanted to do with her. Yeah. But everything up to this point is gold. So before we leave, which daughter do you guys think had the best stuff? For example, I like Riddler's daughter with the period gun, and the smoke, the balls of string. I think the string just came from the lanterns that were hanging in the uh, Chinese restaurant. I wasn't sure about yeah. that. Penguin's daughter, I thought, had the best outfit. She looks cool with a tailored suit, just like the Joker's daughter. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, besides the Joker's daughter herself, I always liked the look of the Riddler's daughter the mm-hmm. best. It seemed to fit the most. But in terms of actual story, like Catgirl got Yeah, she was great. You know, she got the she got a whole issue to herself as Catgirl. More, more space than she had as Joker's daughter. But just aesthetically, I prefer the Riddler. But I will say that I also did make a point of collecting all of the Amigo style action figures that you can get now for all of them. Oh, you can nice. get a Joker's daughter. You can you get have a to send us a picture of that and we'll put it on the gallery. I will do that. I will I will take it. My picture. favorite, and I wish they could have done this with her. I love Scarecrow. Yes. The name. The name I love the name. That's the best name. And I wish they all would have had some kind of feminized, although I can't think of any. So it's I'm sure it's tough. Penguena and Riddleraria. (laughs) Although that last one sounds like some kind of contagious disease, so maybe not. Riddleress. Well, just so everybody knows, Dula appears now in the next issue of the Teen Titans and with them into their run. And she next appears in Batman Family in number 16. So it'll be quite a few issues before we see her again here. Again, we're thinking about doing something special for Teen Titans, but we'll we'll get back to you. And if you are following, it's the Teen Titans number 46, and it's the issue with the Fiddler on the cover. Now, we are going to take a trip to the hip-happening joint of Gabriel's Horn. We're going to talk about the most 1970s moments from the main story with Backer on Robin. Dan, let's start with you. What do you have? Actually, the most 70s moment in this comic 
we haven't even gotten to yet. And it's not even in a story. <laughs> I'll save that for later. I think for this, the part that jumped out at me was the fact that the Chinese restaurant was Ernie's Oriental Palace, which of course <laughs> is not something that you hear today. That was right. very, very of its time. Some of the fashions, you know, Robin wearing his, you know, his swank uh, turtleneck. Yeah, you know, yeah. I had that one. Yeah, that's yeah. the one. But those are those are the ones that kind of jump out. You me. know, prized that he was wearing high karate, and I love that. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> Mine, and I think I'm pretty good at these. I only really had one major one, and we've talked about this before, but especially in this issue, Robin's van. Yeah, the van. That is yeah. the night. The details. The yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I have two others, Sean, that you're going to like. First of all, the 1970s issues that the kids quizzed Babs on, Bussing and the ERA. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Definitely 1970s. But my favorite one comes from the very end where Dula, in order to pay for the damages, she will send anonymous money orders. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> Boom, drop the mic there. Baby. Oh, the mic. I bow to you. Oh. Yeah, I was so afraid you guys were going to get that one. I love that one. It's so funny. I read these stories now, and that's like what I'm looking for. If only it had been a traveler's check, I would have picked <laughs> oh, up that one. Of you. <laughs> All right, let's move on to the second story, which is a four page cookie starring Alfred called Recipe for Revenge. Written by Jack Schiff with art by Jerry Robinson. Originally appeared in Batman number 26, 1944. Sean, do you remember what else was in Batman number 26? Of course. It features an appearance of the Cavalier, who we will see in a few issues from now. And it is Batman of the year 3000 <laughs> appears. Very good. All right. Again, Alfred in Recipe for Revenge. So Dick and Bruce are enjoying a quiet afternoon at Wayne Manor when Alfred announces that he is very upset that their crime fighting has kept them from having a decent dinner all week. He proclaims that he will go downtown to procure the best ingredients and come back and whip them up a meal to remember. But our hero forgets his wallet and Bruce and Dick consign themselves to a can of beans for dinner. <laughs> While at the market, though, Alfred is jostled by a stranger and then he discovers his wallet is missing. Mistaking the rushing man for a pickpocket, Alfred pursues him. He follows him into an alley and tackles the man just in time for both of them to avoid being shot. A gangster emerges from the shadows and Alfred realizes that he is the real threat. But in an act of bravery matching Batman's, he tricks the gangster and is able to disarm him. A policeman arrives and we find out that the gangster was pursuing the erstwhile pickpocket, whose name is Pierre, who was actually a witness to a crime that would send the gangster's brother to prison. Pierre is very grateful to Alfred for saving his life. So Alfred returns home to ribbing from Dick and Bruce that they have no dinner. But Alfred gets the last laugh as he introduces Pierre, master chef of the Gotham Hotel, complete in his chef's hat with arms full of groceries. He is prepared to cook a meal like never before. Dan, Sean, would you invite Pierre to cook for us at the reunion? Most definitely. <laughs> oh. <laughs> for my good friend, Alfred, uh, Pierre, cooked on that like never before. <laughs> Absolutely. Are you kidding me? Everything would be in cream. Everything would just be <laughs> for sure. You know, Batman and Robin have to do a few extra rounds in the Batcave uh, a gymnasium afterwards, I'm sure. <laughs> but yes, yeah, Monsieur, Monsieur Pierre, for sure. 
There's nothing better on a hot September day than some escargot. Right. <laughs> escargot. Yeah, I think the story is fun. I admit that I actually haven't read all that many Alfred Golden Age stories, mostly in reprint places and what have you. And you do forget that, that he's really just comic relief. I mean, he's, yep. he's, he's not the uber-capable former secret agent, field medic, computer <laughs> genius. Right. You know, all of that stuff that he is now, he's really just kind of a, a silly dude who lives at Wayne Mansion, kind of gets into trouble, but then finds his way out of it. And Bruce and Dick are just kind of amused by the whole thing. Yeah, I think they're pretty entitled. <laughs> yeah, right. I know. When he comes back and there's, they're not like, hey, how are you doing? It's like, where's our dinner? <laughs> Jesus, man. I know, he's, I know you're paying the guy, but how about a little, how about a little consideration? Sean, what do you think? I love this story. The amazing thing to me is I've heard or I've read or heard interviews with writers who think Riddler stories are the hardest stories to write. You have to figure out his machinations and all that. I think these are probably the hardest stories because you have to come up with plots that involve butlering, (laughs) like like recipes and menus and stuff like that. No wonder these are four pages because I think this has to be one of the hardest things to do. So far, all of the stories that we've read, these Adventures of Alfred, they have all tied in with him doing his butlering. And I was going to make the same point. They've all been tremendous fun. Yeah. He's been pretty brave in all of them, which I really like. And once he figures out what's really going on, which there's the comic relief, he didn't know what was going on. He's pretty brave and he's the hero. And I don't know. I just I just think that's incredibly charming and super fun. I kept hearing Adam West, Burt Ward, and Alan Napier's voices when I was doing this story, which is not usually the case for Golden Age. And of course, Alan Napier's outfit is a lot smarter and a lot more capable than this one. But (laughs) for some reason, I couldn't unhear it. And that added something to it also. I had one other note on this one. Our pal Martin won't have a logo to complain about. The top of the first page of the story, Adventures of Alfred, with a great (laughs) shot of Alfred in a Sherlock Holmes hat and pipe. Oh my gosh, what a great intro to the story. I love that. There's no modern cut and paste logo here that Martin abhors. So Sean, you were talking about how tricky it is to write. So I've got a little mini Bat Family history of bonus for everybody. Jack Schiff, this is the one and only appearance he has. And I'm trying to squeeze in a bunch of Golden Age type characters because we're going to run out of reprints uh, another issue. Real quick, Jack Schiff, better known as an editor, but he was born in 1909, joined DC after college. His Wikipedia page says that he is a co-creator of Starman in Adventure Comics 61. But most things I've read indicate that Starman was created by the artist Jack Burnley and had contributions from other people like Gardner Fox, who wrote the first story, and the editor of Adventure was Whitney Ellsworth. You know, I don't know how Jack Schiff figured into that mix, but I thought that was interesting they noted that. Anyway, he was an editor for DC in 42. He oversaw various Batman and Superman comic books after Weisinger was drafted to go into World War II. He didn't write a lot of comics, but just want to read off a couple notable things that he did have. He wrote the story that introduced the Bat Signal in Detective Comics number 60. He edited and wrote the Batman comic strip from McClure Newspaper Syndicate. He developed a, a lot of the public service announcements, which we've seen a couple already that ran through DC's publishing line from 49 to the 60s. He then got into launching comic book titles, which were licensed from popular Radio programs, A Date with Judy, Gangbusters, Mr. District Attorney, stuff like that. He was one of the main drivers introducing a lot of science fiction concepts in the Batman story. So we have him to thank for all that, Batman on Alien Worlds. So the one thought I thought was interesting, we mentioned with Dave Wood a while ago, how he created, co-created a strip with Jack Kirby called Sky Masters newspaper strip. 
Apparently, Schiff became involved in a legal dispute with Kirby and the Wood Brothers over that strip, and Schiff won the lawsuit, which I thought was fascinating. Again, not a lot of detail on what was going on there. DC Upper Management removed Schiff as editor of Batman and Detective 1964 and replaced him with who? Julie Schwartz. Schwartz. The rest is history there. So he was given Mystery in Space, Strange Adventures. He left DC after 25 years. His final editing credit was in Strange Adventures number 203, 1967. Sean, just two issues before the debut of Dead Man. Yeah. (laughs) He passed away in 1999, ripe old age of 90. Interesting guy. So little mini bat history. Sorry for doing two in one episode, but I thought that was interesting. Now we're going to take a look at bat branding. And those are the ads and the letter pages featured in Batman Family number nine. And we are going to start off with a rerun. It's actually a reprint. It is the Green Lantern Hostess Fruit Pies ad with the fruit pie scene. And cousins, I'll be honest, in the show notes, Paul wrote, Sean, isn't this a repeat? And I was I'm looking at the script. I'm like, I don't know. I don't pay attention to these things. Because you know, like the hostess ads, like they just all lumped together in my mind. But reading it, I remember us talking about Dr. Loser yeah. resolved. So that picked it off. But yes, this is a reprint ad, not a rerun, a reprint ad, a, a classic representation of the story we all love. Yeah, I was too lazy to look. Look at my prior <laughs> issue when I was typing up the, the notes. <laughs> and don't ever ask me that again. <laughs> okay, fair enough. And on the very next page is a hauntingly good ad for the ghost and mystery and weird titles. You have Ghosts, The House of Mystery, Weird War, Unexpected, and all the logos. Above that is, and I'm actually not sure, is that Kane or Abel? It's Kane, correct? It's is that Kane. That one's Kane, yeah. Kane, the star, one's Kane. Yeah. star of the new series, Sandman, on yeah. Netflix. But he's reading to kids, which is probably a great idea. <laughs> <laughs> the great thing about it is the bottom third says, plus a Halloween special, the DC superstars of magic. And spoiler alert, we will get to that book in a little bit. It's a good one. Right after the Robin and Batgirl story, we have Batmail family. We want to welcome to the reunion our friend Bob Rohde again. Scott Gibson, Mike White, Elizabeth Smith, Dale Sindali, Georgine Freyna, and somebody named Lori Elton. If any of you are listening to the podcast, please let us know. We would love to have you come in. Again, though, I have to point out, Bob Rohde, very insightful comment. And this echoes something you said, Dan. He said, I generally find that their solo story is pretty tepid stuff, but together magic sparks between them. He goes on and he ends with a romance between them. Come on. Robin only wants to see if he can get Batgirl to melt in his arms. And she obviously thinks his macho act is the biggest joke of all. But he compliments their teamwork and camaraderie, which we've been talking about since episode number one. That was my favorite part of the, well, second favorite part of the letter column. We'll get to the first favorite part in a second. I do love that it's two pages of letters. And I'm not going to go into each and every one, but there's a lot of great comments in each of these letters. They picked out like fantastic ones, especially comparing Huntress and Sportsmaster of Earth 1 and Earth 2. I like that they get into that. So yeah, it's really great to read. I had a tremendously fun time reading letters because it was also thematic it's a two-page debate on the whole batgirl robin relationship yep. Mm-hmm. yep each of the letters has a slightly different nuance from the other it's not just these people say this these people say that there's the perspectives not just of the age and then to say well really it's kind of more than in costume that seem to have it where it's clicking not out of i mean people were really thinking about this people this were into a- it 
They really were. And I remember that that was one of the compelling. I mean, I look, what am I, 10 year old boy? But I, it was like a soap opera. Yeah. And I loved it. I yeah. loved the idea of Batgirl and Robin being together, despite the fact that there was that age difference. And I knew that it somehow that it, it just didn't add up, but it was too much fun to ignore. And it really, when you think about it, only goes to follow that eventually DC decided to retcon both characters so that they would be the same age. Right. And that all started here. People think of that being a relatively recent phenomenon, but no, they, they've been toying with that idea for a lot longer than Batgirl even existed. If you, if you go back say, to the Batman TV show, they toy with the idea of having to be a romantic foil for Bruce Wayne. It never really pans out. It never really works. They just didn't have that kind of chemistry like uh, Adam West had with Julie Newmar. I got to read the last letter. Okay, it's only a couple sentences, but it says, Dear Julie and Bob, that's Julie Schwartz and Bob Rosakis, I really wish you would stop all this business about a romance between Dick and Barbara. I'm not going to object because Babs is so much older. Age has nothing to do with love. My objection is simply that I saw him first. And if Babs wants Dick, she's going to have to fight me for him. Signed, Lori Elton and New Carthage. <laughs> I just thought that was class. I kind of feel that because they don't say who the real author is. Whenever a guy or gal wrote this in, like they should get credit. That's that's a fantastic <laughs> letter. I think it's great. I always assume Bob Rizakis just wrote it. <laughs> for, you know, to make up oh. for but maybe you're right. Maybe somebody wrote it in. That's great. All right. So let's move on. Our next ad is three pages into the blockbuster story. And it is for Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer Treasury. Now, a lot of times, Paul rightly points out to me that these are not treasuries. They are limited edition. But the Rudolph is a jam-packed holiday edition. Okay, I'm, ho- I'm holding it in my hands. And I have all of the treasuries, of uh, the DC treasuries, limited collector's edition, except the very first Rudolph one. That's the one I still need, but it goes for hundreds of dollars. Or that. But I was reading this ad, and down at the bottom, it says, the biggest, glossy, full-color pinup poster ever seen in any comic magazine. And I'm like, what? It's just uh, two pages of regular newsprint. But I double-checked, and they are not kidding around because it is on on cover paper stock, and it folds out and then folds again if you take it out of the book. I'm not going to Very cool. Yeah, you're not going to rip that out. (laughs) But it is a really for real glossy poster. Now, the interesting thing is the poster pictured there is the poster in the middle. But on Santa's coat, he's wearing a button and it says, Santa reads DC Comics. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I smelled Jeanette Cohen. She probably saw it and she says, where does it say DC? She was so into branding. It was one of her big things when she came over. I mean, the whole idea of the Super Friends comic to begin with was when she got there, she's like, what do you mean you don't have a Super Friends comic? It's on television. <laughs> for years. And that's how the Super Friends, co- yeah, for years. How do you not have yeah. one of these? And that's how it ended up becoming a comic. Real quick, there's a bottom of the page ad in the middle of the blockbuster story that was for the Challengers of the Unknown and Super Team Family. Obviously, after we do Batman Family Reunion and Superman Family Ties and we get to (laughs) Super Team Family Feud, you know, I love Super Team Family. That was a wild ride, too. It was one of these ones that had couple new stories reprints then it went to all new stories the great story of the adams quest for gene loring in there 
That was a great comic book. If I hadn't done Batman Family, we might want to do that one. That's just a lot of fun. So anyway, I, I think I would not have seen Challengers of the Unknown because then they spun back into their own title after that, I believe. Yeah. And then real quick as well, a couple pages later, Star Trek Lives. Think about this, 1977. There's no other Star Trek besides the original three series. The conventions have just been coming a thing. Presenting Voyage 1 official Star Trek poster magazine, only $1. That's pretty cool. But what I really liked about this is that it's written in a style that the following data is classified material only available to authorized personnel and friends of the federation it says <laughs> you will board the uss enterprise and learn that she's truly a city in space so it's written in a really fun way i love those poster magazines it's yeah, it's amazing. basically like you know a huge sheet and it's just folded over three times i guess to normal magazine size. i was a huge fan of the tv show fame and amazingly, they had a Fame poster magazine and Fame did nothing here in America. So I think there was a Dumbo one. Any of those, they were just so neat. There was a Wham one and I love that because you just kept unfolding and unfolding and unfolding and there was a poster. I love that. The next ad we're going to talk about is a Heroes World ad. Yay! And it is Super Fashions from the Super Friends. And obviously, comic book fans are on the cutting edge of fashion. It's always <laughs> been that way. It always will. It just makes sense. The top three are super pajamas. The designs on these pajamas are fantastic. Like, is it all Neil Adams? Is the middle is the middle Superman Neil Adams? I'm pretty sure the Batman and the Shazam are Neil Adams. And Superman looks more like Murphy. Is. Okay. But yeah, you're right. The outer two certainly are. But I would rather have those as the sweatshirts. Like, if these were sweatshirts, I'd wear those out in public. There are sweatshirts down below with Superman busting out of his S logo, Batman about to cough into his cape, Shazam standing in front of his logo. To the left of that, we have those knit hats with the little beanies on top with a Superman and Batman on the, the brim. Then we have belt buckles, belt buckles, belt buckles. <laughs> <laughs> Superman, Batman, and Shazam, and they're all the figures of the characters with a little logo. And then the Superman S-Shield, I believe, Paul, you may be familiar with that belt buckle. I was going to say, I was a little surprised. This looks to me like it's the overstock from the DC Bicentennial belt buckles that I did acquire a few months ago. I think that's what it is. It, there's no question. Which makes you think that how many comic books did you have to buy to get that belt buckle and you find out it was... <laughs> I had one of the stocking caps, but I didn't have this Batman stocking cap. I had a different one that had his early 70s logo on it. And I had the patch for years. I may still have it somewhere buried somewhere, but... Of all of these, that's that that's the only one that I got. Did either of you have any of this stuff? Mine is similar. I had a Superman knit cap like that, but instead of the patch being the Superman figure, it was the S shield. Yeah, I didn't have any of the stuff on this page, unfortunately. We're still looking for the ruler from last episode. <laughs> Yeah. Then last, let's just wrap it up. The back cover has kind of a fun ad. Ride into adventure with Evil Knievel. Got a super cycle and all the rest. I did have the bike of Evil Knievel where you would attach the bike to this thing and you'd wind it up like this and then you'd let it go and go. So I did have the bike. I don't think I had any of the other stuff, although the Canyon Sky Cycle looks cool. I don't know how they would get that to work, but that's pretty neat. I had borrowed the Sky Cycle from a friend. and I got to tell you, it was very difficult to give it back <laughs> i did because it was the right thing to do but boy did i consider other options but the cycle itself they re-released just a couple of years oh, ago i didn't know that at the time it was only like 30 bucks and it's like a dead-on replica and so i finally got my own evil knievel just a couple nice. of years ago but this is the piece that i was referring to earlier when i said if you're looking for the most 70s uh -huh. 
in this oh, issue, yeah. it's an evil Knievel ad on the back. You know, Slim Jims are still around. <laughs> so otherwise I'd go with the Slim Jim, but, but having an evil Knievel ad, that's mega 70s right there. He was huge in the 70s. And there's no person to really like compare him to today. No, somebody being famous for doing stupid stuff. Maybe the Kardashians. I mean, I don't know. I was thinking jackass, but the, I mean, that was just them running into urinals. <laughs> this is him jumping over canyons. And then, of course, indirectly led to the great jumping the shark. Uh, Fonzie, uh, yeah. Right, exactly, videos. yeah. First off, they made Fonzie do barrels or buses that he did. And then they upped the ante after Jaws had come out and they decided to have him jump a shark. They always toyed with the Fonzie evil Knievel connection which I always appreciate. Okay, we are going to move on to our third story, and that is The Blockbuster Breaks Loose, starring Batman and Robin. It's 13 pages, and the writer is Gardner Fox. The penciler is Carmine Infantino. Anchor, Joe Giello. Originally appeared in Detective Comics number 349, and if you're reading these Batman family stories through the DC Universe app, that's how you have to get it, because it's not part of the DC Universe Infinite Batman family. I forgot to mention that on the Alfred story. You have to go back to Batman 26, which is on the app. But for some reason, the Batman family issue doesn't have the two backups. I forgot to mention that. Thanks for reminding us, Sean. You are welcome. The Blockbuster Breaks Loose. Our story opens with the Blockbuster playing his own version of F. Marry Kill that he has renamed Hate Find Kill. Our story proper begins right where the story from Detective 345 left off with a quick recap of the Blockbuster's origin, which is, um, okay, I guess at Camp Crystal Lake, Mark Desmond was drowning and Bruce Wayne saved him. But then years later, Mark invented a super soldier strength serum, which bulked up his body, but shrunk his reasoning, turning him into a Blockbuster. Blockbuster hates Batman, but is super down to hang with Bruce Wayne. Now, I ain't saying he's a gold digger, nope. It's because of the life-saving gesture that Bruce performed years earlier to save the life of Mark before he became Blockbuster. Okay, I have to say up front, everyone listening to me say the name Blockbuster is thinking about the huge video rental store. But for me, Blockbusters will always remain the 80s game show hosted by Bill Cullen, which I love and is available on YouTube. So go watch it. Anywho. Blockbuster escaped BNR by making like Moses and parting the Red Sea to go hang out in an undersea cave. Months later, when BNR are trying to stop a department store robbery, Blockbuster changes his name to Floorbuster to interrupt the fun. <laughs> hey, no big deal, Batman thinks. I'll whip off my mask and tell Blockbuster that the sun's getting real low. But mask off, mask on. Batman can't show his Bruce Wayne face in front of Blockbuster, but his Batman face can take a mighty pounding from Blockbuster's fist. Faintly, Bruce whispers in the voice of Mark's brother Desmond, put the candle back. Oh, I'm sorry. He whispers, let Batman alone. Back at the Batcave, when Batman takes off his mask, we see the re-emergence of Ms. Vane, because girl... Bruce Wayne's face is more purple than Bruce Banner's pants, which means that they can't rely on the usual way of calming down Blockbuster, Bruce's beautiful visage. BNR devise a new way of calming down Blockbuster by painting Desmond's face on a mask 
and then <laughs> shining a special flashlight on the result. Oh boy. A week later, BNR are trying to stop an art heist, but the blockbuster Kool-Aid mans his way in through the wall. Blockbuster is about to strike when Robin turns on his give a show projector and the face and voice of his brother Desmond calms him down. And then they can put him to sleep and take him to jail. The end. Oh, uh, we still have four more pages to fill? Well, in that case, the flashlight does actually work, but then a bunch of art gallery pieces start to slam into Robin to knock him off balance so that he stops illuminating Batman's special effect mask. Blockbuster knocks out Batman, and that's all he ever wanted out of life. And then some mysterious force that has been guiding Blockbuster all of this time puts Batman in a sarcophagus. But the heat inside causes the paint on Batman's mask to melt and then form a hardened substance that lets him crack the coffin. Once free, Batman uses his reinforced gauntlet to knock Block out. Then we find out the mysterious force is the outsider. The end. For real. Dan, what did you think? I'm going to save some of this because, spoiler alert, you have been generous enough to allow me to come back in a few episodes to talk about the Outsider episode. So I don't want to get into all of I have to say about the Outsider right here, but I love the Outsider. <laughs> it is the greatest Batman story that has still never been collected in book form, except for the showcase books, which were black and white. It doesn't hold up at all. It's completely daffy Silver Age stuff. They were obviously making it up as they went along with that character. So none of it really makes any sense other than the fact that it looks really cool when he's pasty white and he's got problems all over his <laughs> skin. And we'll get to that. But Outsider Stories, which I first discovered through the backup reprints in Batman Detective and, and whatever else I was reading in the now here, you know, Batman family, they were like a, a, a crack to me. I love The Outsider. I love the notion of The Outsider. I love the whole concept of The Outsider. None of it made any sense. I didn't care at all. I loved it. And to this day, I still love The Outsider. And Paul. Well, knowing what's coming up, I understand why they put this in, even as Martin Grail complained that it's just Batman and Robin, but The Outsider was part of Batman's family. Good Carmine Infantino art this yes. time period. Yeah. Fun overall. I don't have quite the connection with the outsider that you do, Dan. I read all those reprints too, and I not knowing the history back in the day of killing Alfred off, putting Aunt Harriet, the bringing Alfred Bragg, you know, all that kind of stuff. I found out later, but it's a fun story. I mean, I've always been puzzled by Blockbuster. <laughs> I'm never a huge fan of Blockbuster. I appreciate that he's got some, I guess you can call it fashion sensitive. Where's Birkenstocks? <laughs> Co color coordinates his orange and purple yeah. <laughs> uh, all the time. And Gyan seems to be his only, <laughs> the only word that he can speak. Never been a huge blockbuster fan. But what I did appreciate about him, they brought him back years later in different versions. And he did kind of make a resurgence. But in the 60s, it felt right. When he showed up in the Batman comics at the time, it felt very silvery. I would rather, of course, have seen uh, Joker, Penguin, Riddler, any number of villains. So when Blockbuster showed up, it was like, <laughs> but it had, for me, the extra element of the outsider. And still, it was of its moment. So I enjoy any comic book from the 
mid-60s. So I would say I like Blockbuster as a C-list villain. And I'm not throwing shade. I'm not denigrating him at all. Well, no, he is. The the most interesting spin is that Bruce Wayne calms him down. So you have to figure out a way for Batman to take off his mask and not have his identity revealed. And I think all of that is super cool and fascinating and can make for a great story. The good thing is with my Batman family history, I didn't get this issue until much, much later. And I had already read the outsider issue. And I think that is a much better introduction to the outsider. You know, they explain what happened and everything. Going back, this really feels like the middle part of a story. Yeah. Because it is. You don't really see the outside. I just wish for Batman Family number nine, I think they could have had a better story to introduce the outsider. Unless they didn't really want to feature the outsider because he was coming down the pipe. But it was also in Batman and Detective from 74, 75, they were running all of the outsider stories already. So this only would have been a year or two later after they had already been in print. So maybe they figured, let's just have a little catch-up story here that'll set up what's coming on down the line. But so much of the inside story of the outsider and the introduction and all of that kind of stuff had had already been reprinted pretty recently when this book had come out. And definitely like the Carmine Infantino art is fantastic. This is him looking great. My favorite Carmine Infantino is Flash, absolutely. But his Batman work, I think, is so beautiful, too. For me, it's the other way around. I mean, I love the Flash, and you're right. It's his signature character. Carmine Infantino is on the Mount Rushmore of Batman artists. The fight page where there's sort of the four panels. We got some good fight pages in this issue, for sure. Yes. Oh, so I guess we should go beat by beat. So it starts off Batman and Robin. They're looking out in the water. And this is a flashback to Batman 261. And they go over his origin. It's kind of scattershot because it starts off with a recap of the previous appearance, which was a couple issues ahead of this. Then you follow Blockbuster and he gets in his underground cave. Then kind of the story starts because he interrupts a heist in the department store. Yeah, just sort of the random coming up through the floor, I thought was weird. I guess he's been down in the cave, but he happens to pick the department store that Batman and Robin are in, and it's just about getting robbed at that time. It's a little bit of a stretch for me. I do think it's cool how... Batman and Robin sort of automatically just assume they know how to stop him. Robin's like, oh, let me get all these other people out so Batman can take his mask off. Yeah. Easy peasy. Of course, it doesn't work out that way. We talk about the sense of motion in still comic book panels, but it's neat because you can see him whipping off the mask and then you see a fly around. And it's funny because obviously I don't hear it, but in my mind, I do hear like a... And it's coming back to him. I love that artwork. I think that is fantastic. So, Sean, you must have liked the image at the bottom of the page where Batman and Robin don't have their masks on and Dick's shirt is kind of awry. When they're working on the infrared light thing, which is another science thing that I'm sure you love. (laughs) Now that people have explained Batgirl's multi-light tracer... I can, now, <laughs> I, can now, I can now accept things like this more easily, more readily. <laughs> I will say at the bottom of the following page, Robin is drawn mistakenly with no mask. So he needs to go into the bathroom and get a paper towel. To- <laughs> <laughs> That's right. That's some projector because it also removed his mask. When you talked about how Blockbuster just comes up out of the floor, I think if we would have seen the introduction of the outsider as the guiding force earlier, I think the story would have been better. That's true. Cause then it could have been, he brought him there on purpose and we would have known it, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. 
I got nothing else on this. And other than the logo, Martin Gray must be pouring his bangers and mash ice cream over his head with this logo at the beginning. Batman presents the villain of the issue, the blockbuster. It's pretty terrible. Logos. And the Batman looks like it's like Batman logo from issue number one or something. <laughs> Yeah, Martin, I agree. You talk about this all the time, but I, you are 100% right. We're imagining that you are raging against this, and I think we are <laughs> raging with you. It looks horrendous. <laughs> well, if we don't have anything else on this one, let's move on to the Bat Timeline. In this segment, we're just taking a look at the other titles that were published this month by DC and others, and what the best of the Batman family was doing. Thanks, as always, to the great website, Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics. And we're looking at October 1976. Sean, you want to kick us off with Batman? Absolutely. Starts off with Batman number 283. And man, this cover is fantastic. We were talking about Ernie Chan, Ernie Chua, and he does this cover. And it's fantastic because it's like a deep purple swirly background. But then there's also a figure that's that same purple swirl. And it, it looks fantastic. The story is Omega Bomb Target, Gotham City. I've never read this story, but oh, this cover makes me want to read it. It looks fantastic. Over in Detective number 467 with a great Rich Buckler cover of Batman hitting another Batman into an oncoming train and saying, oh my God, I've killed Batman. <laughs> and both stories in this book are actually written by Bob Rosakis. And the Batman story is, is good, but once again, it's the backup. Hawkman versus the Calculator. One more issue till the finale. And our next issue is Justice League of America number 138. Of course, Batman is in with all his JLA pals. This is a good month for covers because it is the fantastic cover that has Adam Strange and he's shooting his ray gun at the JLA members. Oh my gosh, it's just so good. And of course, the cover artist is Neil Adams. I'm assuming you all just know that off of you. That's, a, that's, my an, description. Awesome, that's an awesome cover. It, it is beautiful. I, I love that, that picture, that photo. The detective story, I don't remember all that well. I remember more the Batman story, but that cover is one of my favorite early yeah, chain covers. One. And it made me wish that the villain lived up to its promise on the cover. I'm like, this is just, this is a, just a neat idea. And the story I remember is well, being unmemorable, but the, the cover has always yeah. stayed with me. And I have frequently highlighted it among whenever I've written about Ernie Chan and Batman. It's, it's a really great cover. And normally we would have talk about Super Friends or Teen Titans or World's Finest Comics, but none of them are on the stands this month. Brave and the Bold? Not even the Brave and the Bold, nothing this month. Starting to see that Batman is not selling like he used to. A lot of those are on either bi-monthly or that crazy eight or nine times a year schedule that they used to have for a lot of those books. Yeah, it was a weird month with no Super Friends, no Teen Titans, no World's Finest, nothing. No Brave and the Bold. But I still have no doubt that we are going to be able to spend our money at the newsstand, aren't we, Paul? <laughs> Absolutely. But I want to hear what Dan's going to pick. Well, heck, if I could have gotten it on the newsstand, Amazing World of DC yep, Comics, yeah, absolutely. which I actually, over the last few years, managed to get myself an entire run of. And nice. Ooh. And I got to tell you, it was worth all of the effort because it is a great magazine and it gives a yeah. great, really overview, surprisingly candid overview of what it was like inside DC Comics at that area. But I would love a collection of all 17 yeah. issues. I mentioned that earlier, Dan, that in another in an earlier episode that when we talked about an, a previous issue, at one point I got a subscription to this. So I had like half of them from a subscription. Right. And then I did the same as you. And I don't know, probably 10 years ago, went back and got the rest. I think this was one of the ones I got as a subscription because I was not a Sergio Aragonese. I, I, I never knew how to say Aragonese. Aragonese. 
Aragonis. I was never a big fan of Sergio, but now I look at it and obviously it's, it's a riot. But, I, you know, as a kid, I wasn't a big fan, but great, great choice. I would also pick 2001 A Space Odyssey because if you've ever read it, it is almost the exact opposite in terms of tone of the actual movie, <laughs> which I consider to be one of the greatest movies ever. So to have Stanley Kubrick and Jack Kirby's visions of the same material to be so radically different is really kind of a wonderful exercise. The DC Superstars of Magic Giant, DC Superstars number 11, has one of the great Zatanna covers yep. of all time. Gray Morrow, I believe, did the artwork. Yep. Here, yep. here. Sean, I bet you had that one. Yep. Exactly right. That is a classic. I think we all had that one on our list. Gray Morrow, Hubba Hubba for Z. Yeah, it's just a great shot. Since I was a Spider-Man fan also, I, I, if I'd seen that Spider-Man issue, I would have picked it up. But the one that really, really, uh, Logan's run number mm. one. I love that movie. To me, Logan's Run was Star Wars before Star Wars. My dad actually introduced me in 2001 when I was a kid. I saw it on the big screen when it was, you know, it was in a re-release maybe in 1972 or, or what have you. So that to me was a whole other difference. But in terms of like whiz-bang science fiction, crazy concept with all sorts of cool set pieces, Logan's Run was it. And I remember seeing it where I saw it in the movie theater, Brunswick Square uh, Cinema in central New Jersey. So I was all about the Logan's Run until Star Wars came along and then made Logan's Run look like a, you know, a B-movie. George Perez, too. Yeah, George Perez, yeah. And the great thing about Logan's Run is it's such an easy tagline. You live in paradise until you're 30 and then you die. Like that explains it. Right. So Sean, how about you? What you got other than that? Okay. So here is the mega list. We're going to start off. I'm going to go through <laughs> fast. All-Star Comics number 64 with the Super Squad, of course. Love the JSA. My next two picks are Archie's Christmas Stocking and Betty and Veronica's Christmas Spectacular. Of in course. October. Love my Christmas comics. They can't come early enough. And speaking of which, there's Casper's Ghostland, which is also a Christmas comic. Love it. My next one was DC Stars of Super Magic with the beautiful Zatanna cover. And then Four Star Spectacular with Crypto attacking Superboy. What? I'm going to go to Marvel. Right now, I'm rereading all of the Mighty Marvel Masterworks, and I'm making my way through the Captain America one now. So I'm going to get Marvel Double Feature featuring Captain America and Black Panther. And that's To Be Reborn and And So It Begins. And my next title is the first issue of Ms. Marvel. Although I love her costume with the sash much, much more. Her first costume is cool and it's a first issue. So I'll try that. Mm -hmm. The next one on my list, of course, is the Rudolph Treasury. Needed to have it then. I have it now. Wonderful. The next issue is number five of Bonkers. I'm, I'm sorry, the Secret Society of Super <laughs> Villains. I always forget that title. <laughs> The next one is my beloved Shazam, number 27. And this, of course, is when he's going on the tour of America. Superman, number 307, is next. And this is a fantastic cover. Classic cover. Yes. You see Supergirl from the waist down, and she is throwing down the bottled city of Kandor. And Kal-El is not happy about that at all. That links into mine. Three fantastic Neil Adams covers this month. That one, the Justice League one, and one that was on my list, Flash number 246. And if you go back and look at that one, yeah, yeah, it's got Flash with smoking hands having looked like he just killed Abracadabra. Fantastic. Great stuff. Carrie Bates yeah. and Irv Novick, plus a Green Lantern backup in that one. A couple others that I had that you guys had mentioned. On Avengers number 155 behind a Jack Kirby cover. 
you got a uh, Jerry Conway, George Perez, and mm. Pablo Marcos, Bronze Age, Avengers versus Doctor Doom and Submariner. Holy cow. I think this was all part of the super villain team up, which was their version of the Secret Society of Super Villains, Sean. Yeah. Marvel Classics number 14, War of the Worlds. I think I had this one. Had a couple of the Marvel Classics. I maybe had the Treasure Island one too. There's four or five of them out this month. Got to get some education in here. Spidey and the X-Men team up in Marvel Team Up Annual number one. Love the annuals. We talked about Nightcrawler last episode, Sean. X-Men was still a bi-monthly at this point. And I didn't start reading X-Men until quite a while from now. I mean, next month I looked it up on Mike's Amazing World is 103. And I didn't start buying until around the death of the Phoenix. So this annual was probably my introduction to the whole group. But the coolest thing, and again, breaks the budget once again, the Encyclopedia of Comic uh. Book Heroes, Volume <laughs> 2 of Wonder Woman. Yeah. Volume 2 of only two. <laughs> you know, yes. there's the Batman, there was the Wonder Woman, and then that was it. Very frustrating. And Michael Fleischer put those things together. As a kid, I poured over both this one, more the Batman one I poured over than this one, but this was pretty awesome. Well, they did have the Superman yeah. one, but they just had a different name. Oh, that's right. It was a different they name. The Great Superman. Great Superman. Oh, okay. You're right. There was but, a Superman yeah. one for the movie that was called a different thing. You're right. You're right. I'm sorry. I'm not putting anyone on the spot. I, I don't know. Was it also done by the same author? Yes. Okay, okay. Yes. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was originally supposed to be like a six or seven volume series. And then it just ended up petering out yep. with the two and okay, the okay. Superman one, which they rebranded. Actually, if, if I may, I would add two more. Comics. Oh, go for it. Go for it. Adventure Comics 449 with Aquaman. Yeah. The, the stories are so interesting. Yeah. And We're era. building up to the death of the Aqua Baby. Yeah, exactly. Which really is weird. Marvel Tales with Spider-Man's origin retold. I would add that to the list. Mm-hmm. And Red Sonja number one. Oh, her, I didn't even uh, notice Red Sonia number one. Yeah, I just realized that. Just, oh, yeah, you're right. Excellent. So there you go. Excellent. Yeah. Good choice. And we have to do our Richie Rich count. I was going to say, we are not done at the newsstand yet until we give our Richie Rich count. <laughs> Only 10, I count. Only 10. Uh, uh, uh. Oh, do I miss one again? Man, you I'm mad forget. at this. You have to go. You can't just look at the R's. You have to go under the S's <laughs> to add the 11th title, which is Super Richie. <laughs> <God>. <laughs> This has been an amazing thing, Dan, of how many Richie Rich comic books there were at this time. Batman is only in three or two comics, and Richie Rich is in 11. Just like Rudolph has the most treasuries, right. Richie Rich has the most comics. It was a different world. And the same thing was with the Archie titles, too. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. were so many. Even if you go back just a few years, there were so many more. You look at a day in 1972, and it's like 20 different Archie titles on at the same time. Actually, by the time this publishes, I will have probably published it at the site my theory about who richie rich grew up to be oh <laughs> leave that with you. by the time you listen to this you'll probably be able to find it out so you can go look it over at 13th dimension or something <laughs> actually as we're recording this is going to be this week because i happened upon some information okay all right look forward to that dan we want to thank you so much for coming to the reunion we always love it when our cousins come to visit other than richie rich do you want to tell us things that are coming up on 13th dimension or where they can find you first off thank you so much for letting me come on because this is one of my favorite comic books ever. And to be able to talk about it, and like I said, in our, as we're messaging back and forth, you're going to have a hard time shutting me up. <laughs> so thank you for, thank you for indulging me. People have accused me of liking the sound of my own voice. And that is certainly the case when it comes to something like this. So thank you again. As far as what's going on at 13th Dimension, it's, as I like to say, sometimes when I'm on a podcast like this, if you like what we're talking about here, then you will like what we do over there. Yeah. And really the heart of what we publish is about silver and bronze age comics 
a little bit after that, a little bit before that, but that's really the meat of it. Batman, of course, being my favorite, so he gets the most uh, attention at the site, but I do mix it up, obviously, Marvel and DC and Speaking of Archie, in fact, by the time you read this, you know, you mentioned the Archie Christmas issues. I'm the same way. I love Archie's holiday themed issues. And this week, as we're recording this, we'll have a special preview of Archie's five, count them, five Christmas titles that are coming up this uh, season <laughs> uh, that we will be revealing at 13th Dimension. So again, if you're into Archie, by the time you, you listen to this, check out the site, you'll see the five titles that they've got coming nice. in November, which means they probably have more coming in December as well. Thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you again. Now we're going to play a couple of podcast promos. And when we return, we will read your listener feedback. Your Halloween headquarters for the greatest podcast selection of classic horror films. The House of Frankenstein. Modern houses scare you. <laughs> They're mortar, stone, and wood. Visit fireandwaterpodcast.com Longini Jr. The creature that's been alive for over 3,000 years is in this town, and it's brought death with it. George Zuko. If you were to kill me, you're leaving at large a monster that only I can control. Peter Cushing. Is that what you want, Count Dracula? A last blaze of utter horror and violence. Christopher Lee. Revenge has spread over centuries and has just begun. Morris Karloff. Colin Clive. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And Don Knotts. So what is brave? How should I know? I'm chicken. Plus, only at Supermates Podcast, your favorite comic superheroes versus fiendish monsters. Wonder Woman. Superman. We meet again. You must pay for burying me. Check your local podcast listings for a location near you. All treats, no tricks. And you're chicken if you miss the house of Frankenstein. Welcome back. And now we're going to read and respond to your listener feedback for episode eight, Cat Girl Takes Robin for a Spin. I wanted to remind everyone that we have a new promo for our show out there. We actually got a few comments on that page. Chuck Coletta says, I was on a tour of France earlier this summer, and one of the ladies in our group is friends with Bob Rosakis. That's pretty cool, Chuck. Thanks for sharing. And hopefully, everyone knows by now that we were lucky enough to talk to Bob Rosakis and interviewed him on our special episode that dropped just a few days ago. Then Mike Thomas adds, looking forward to your coverage of the Rosakis era. He was one of the first comic book writers I knew by name because I brought Batman family regularly. And I remember the answer man also. You guys are great every month. Well, we appreciate it, Mike. Thanks for the kind words. And again, hope you enjoyed the Rosakis interview too. And now onto the comments from episode number eight. First up, Rob, the multi-alien Kelly from so many podcasts that there is now an award named after him says, you guys seem positively giddy this time around. The spinner makes his second appearance as as many months on the network. I sense a theme. The Joker's daughter having her full makeup and wig on underneath the cow and mask. Ish, that must have been hot AF. And I'm replying, wait until you get a load of her masks in this episode, Rob. <laughs> Rob goes on to say, fun fact, I had the Aquaman pencil case as a kid, and it was the first item I ever bought on eBay. That led to me collecting Aquaman stuff, which led to the Shrine, which led to the Fire and Water podcast, which led to the network, which led to this very show. 
Very cool. Next up, we have the scary Chris Franklin. He pipes in as he's preparing for the House of Frankenstein. Still listening, gents, but a few initial thoughts. This was my first issue of Batman Family Proper, picked up at one of my earliest visits to a comic shop in nearby Lexington, Kentucky in the late 80s. Like I said in comments on the previous Joker's Daughter story, I kind of knew who she was from Tales of the Teen Titans number 50, but this was my first exposure to her in her prime. That jarring last panel of her face exposed was an odd introduction. Odd that you'd later bring up Charles Paris keeping bat artists in line on the symbol when Irv Novick had been drawing Batman stories for nearly a decade, goofs it up in this story. <laughs> he ought to know better. But I love me some Irv Novick. His work was always so kinetic. Perfect artist for The Flash and, of course, Batman and family. When I brought this book, I said, aha! Here was the spinner referenced in my beloved Brave and the Bold number 182, which Siskoid and I just covered on FW Team Up. Yeah, that was weird, Chris, as Rob mentioned above, <laughs> and totally unplanned. Other great movies with windmills? The climax of the original 1931 Frankenstein, starring Boris Karloff, has him squaring off with his maker Colin Clive in a windmill. Of course, the villagers torch it with a misunderstood monster inside. Another is Hammer's 1960 film, The Brides of Dracula. Peter Cushing's peerless Van Helsing uses a windmill as a makeshift cross to destroy a vampire. Who else could pull that off but Cushing? And this is the part in the script where it says I'm supposed to reply with more trivia about windmills. <laughs> so what I'm going to say is in the movie, The Thomas Crown Affair, there's a song called Windmills of Your Mind. It's very, very beautiful. Dusty Springfield did a cover version of it. But there's a group from the 80s called Swing Out Sister, and they had a hit called Breakout, so you might know that. But they do the best version of Windmills of Your Mind, and they just came out with a box set. Now, I'm not saying people should go out and buy the box set, <laughs> but at the very least, on YouTube or streaming, stream Windmills of Your Mind from Swing Out Sister and like the best of, because I love them. They're very jazzy, very 80s. They're, they're fantastic. I knew you would have windmill trivia, so that's all. <laughs> Chris goes on, I have the 1976 calendar, but not 1977 or 78, sadly. But good luck breaking through my bat defenses, cousin. <laughs> the giant penny was made to roll. <laughs> I wrote an article on superhero school supplies for 13th Dimension last year, and this ad had some of the items that are included, including that sweet ruler, which I'd love to own. And Chris included a link to the article, and after I read it, I drooled over a different item, a hokey plastic Batman slide rule. But I looked it up on eBay, and there was only one, and it was listed for 120 bucks. It was still <laughs> in the case, though, but... <laughs> Anyway, back to Chris. Oh, and that Batcopter was a cheap rack toy made by AHI, Azrak Hamway, but it was indeed a lot of fun. I ran through several, but they would really soar up in the air and get stuck on roofs, trees, you name it. AHI also made a Spider-Man because they basically made a Spidey for every bad item they made, despite Peter Parker being too broke to have a fleet of vehicles. <laughs> Oh, and thanks for the bio in Charles Paris. I didn't know much about him beyond a few snippets and DC collection bios, but I always considered him to be the Batman inker of his first 20 years. Wonderful to hear he and Mr. Sprang had such an admiration for each other. The top Batman team of those years in my book. Thanks, Chris. I enjoy doing the bios. Future guest and zany bat uncle Martin Gray zooms into the reunion next. Hello, Grandpa Paul and Grandpa Sean. Thanks for another top listen. Ah, cat girl. Such fun. That first page is interesting, very Marvel-like in the way the teaser line is at the top of the splash, and I rather like the ad hoc Robin logo. And you can't go wrong with Irv Novick art and a Bob Rosakis script. The copycat girl capers is a typically great Rosakis pun, though not as brilliant as next issue's Scarecrow. 
It's a shame Dick had such a crush on the ancient Batgirl and was going out with the wet Lori Elton. Spunky Jula Dent could have just been the woman for him. Could she be any more Mae West in that reveal panel? I do like that panel. I do think mm-hmm. that's a great panel. Mm-hmm. The Spinner story is huge fun. Bill Finger really didn't phone it in, did he? What a nicely worked story. This seems to have been recolored. In the original Batman number 129 version, the spinner is dingy green, whereas in the reprint, he's a lighter green, but the intersections are yellow, much prettier. One difference that confuses me. On page five of the original, there's a business sign posted, Wellsy or Wells, W-E-L-L-S-E. But in the reprint, it's Ramesky Johnson. What's that all about? If you Google Ramesky Johnson, you get a reference to a pair of college football coaches, but that's 2019 or something. I suspect that might. <laughs> that's great catch, Martin. I agree. It looks like it's been recolored when I checked my copy, but the signage, I have no idea about that. That's really fascinating. I don't have any idea if any of our Bat cousins have knowledge of that, but that's a weird one. We'll discuss the billboard later on in the Bat Facebook and Bat Twitter update. And Martin continues, the Batgirl story was very dull. I agree. But at least it has the real Jason Bard, other than the recent scumbag revamp. And this is Sean here saying, I am very grateful that I know nothing about this. <laughs> and I think I want to choose to remain that way. Now back to Martin. Regarding Don Heck, I agree. This isn't great art. But he does a lovely Boots Gordon in civvies, which makes it weird that once the mask is on, she doesn't look half as good. As for Irv Novik being just a step above Heck, or however it was put, get out of town. Novik was a lot better. Yep, Martin, that was me. And I I agree 100% with you. And when I listened to it, it certainly did not come out the way that I meant it. To be honest, I'm not sure what I was trying to say. Believe me, I love me some Irv Novik too. Yeah, I don't remember that part either, because if you would have denigrated Irv Novik, I definitely would have said, oh, no. I was trying to compare the the styles or something, and it, it just didn't work. So apologies to all the bat cousins out there. I think we're all in agreement. <laughs> Martin goes on to say, and have a million points for the reference to the three-eyed Kryptonian babouche when discussing the Batgirl story. Thank you for the information on Charles Paris. I know the name, and it's great to hear more about him. What a tragedy about all of his later artwork and belongings being burned in a fire. Yeah. Martin says, I love the original Teen Titans spooky period, but I also love the return run by Bob Rosakis. Pure, fun superheroics. I've never heard of these sugar daddy type cereals from Nabisco. Is someone thinking about Grimbor again? <laughs> Why the question about whether they're popular in the UK? Yeah, well, we just wondered what is the difference between sugared cereal in the UK and here. Like sugar daddies here are just a candy. It's not a cereal. But we certainly have sugared cereal like uh, Frosted Flakes and pretty much anything in the 70s. <laughs> Martin goes on to say, Rich Hango from the letters page is a pal of mine. I've told him he was name checked. And I'm saying, what? What did he say? We need to get him on the show. Anyone that has a letter in Batman family is grandfathered in to have a spot on this show. Martin goes on to say, why did you call cousin Rob McCarthy, Arthur Fleck? I see some film Joker link, but why poor Rob? And we're just acknowledging that Cousin Rob's love of the Joker. That's that's all it is. We don't think he's a criminal mastermind <laughs> at all. Martin then says, that green latrine insult for Green Lantern, mentioned by The Shade, actually appeared in James Robinson and Paul Smith's Golden Age Number 2, which I'm working my way through, finally, so I can listen to a recent FW podcast on it. That miniseries is great. The show that the network just did is fantastic. It made me reread it. 
and mm-hmm. appreciate it again. Yeah. Great book. Martin and Captain Entropy go back and forth on the Golden Age book, and in particular, Paul Smith's artwork in that story. And then Captain Entropy also says, great episode from start to finish, Bat Cousins. Truly enjoyable. I'd type more, but the ants are headed toward my fried chicken. Catch you next month. Speaking of the Jokerific, Rob McCarthy, he has to pipe in and say, my favorite thing about the secret society of supervillains was that it's always Luther, Sinestro, and Copperhead. And gee, who always gets captured? <laughs> Next up, Bat Cousin Eric drops by the reunion to provide us with some condiment knowledge regarding the catsup ketchup discussion and whether there are other varieties besides tomato ketchup. I once bought a bottle of mango ketchup. It was actually very good. As you might expect from a mango sauce, it was sweet and tangy. Probably not suited for burgers or fries, but as I recall, it went pretty well with chicken. Sean, our listeners have great food knowledge. (laughs) I was going to say, I can't wait until the next reunion so I can have some mango chicken. There you go. Next up, Bat Cousin Tim Price drops by. Hey, Bat Cousins, I brought the broccoli and bacon salad Mm -mm. for the first issue of Batman Family I ever read. And this always fascinates me. So, cousins, write in and let us know what your issue is. That's the first issue you had, especially if you are commenting on that issue when we do that episode. I must have had a copy because I remember rereading it, but it's long gone, alas. Lots of fun to revisit on the DCU app. So that's the thing. I never saw the Joker's Daughter intro in number six, nor the conclusion next issue. So this whole arc is new to me, and I'm getting to enjoy it now. For that alone, I'm glad I came to the reunion. Okay, that's super cool, Tim. We are really glad we're giving you a reason to read these great stories. That's just great. So thanks for letting us know. One funny thing I remember as a kid, seeing the panel with Robin running and there being a streak of his movement, I definitely thought, does Robin have super speed? In modern times, the artist would instead give multiple separate images of Robin to make the page dynamic, but without the blur. Mm-hmm. I'm sure artists have done that in his Nightwing series a lot. So it's interesting to revisit this older one and relive my younger self's confusion. Whew, that hurt my head. He goes on to say, and I still love Robin and Catgirl's chemistry when they fight the henchmen together. That was a lot of fun and teasing more to come. Speaking of henchmen, it's also hard to picture modern Catwoman having henchmen at all, as she's evolved so much since then. Fascinating. But nothing's more disturbing than Catgirl's face coming off to reveal the extremely pointy chin of Joker's daughter, because there's no way that face fit under the Catgirl mask. Ah, comics. He goes on to say, that spinner, he's the tops. No, not really. Oh, wait, got to check something. Just talk to Uncle Chester and I'll be right back. So the doctor wanted to remove that boil, but would have kept him out of the hog catching contest. I'm back. This issue came out about one year before my family moved to Joliet, Illinois, and I'm quite sure I never paid attention to all the references to the Joliet State Prison in that story. But I can say, living in the city for six years, none of the prison lingo is part of the community, so I can neither confirm nor deny the definition of rhino, except to think it's hilarious they made such a big deal about the Joliet prison connection, repeating it like four times. Although, it was also common for out-of-towners to seriously think my high school was the prison. But that's another story. (laughs) We always knew there's a reason we like you, Tim. As for the Batgirl story, I'm not a Don Heck fan myself. As you know, it's okay. I know he has his fans and more power to him. But I do enjoy this story, even if it's a fib about being the last Batgirl story. I'm glad her stories haven't stopped yet. Jason Bard is also an interesting character to see pop up, and it was great to see him here. 
Thanks for another great episode and the chocolate meringue pie, Bat Cousins. <laughs> Thanks, Tim. And I want to ensure our listeners that we sent Tim no payroll rhino to say those <laughs> nice things about us. So Another international Bat Cousin, Roger Gray, makes his way to the reunion. Longtime Bat Cousin listener, first time Bat Cousin writer here. I love listening to your podcast, but have not felt that I have much to contribute, at least till now. However, I did want to point out that if any of you ever find your way to the Philippines or maybe to your local Filipino restaurant or Asian supermarket, you might want to try some delicious lumpia, similar to egg rolls or spring rolls. And if you do, you'll want to dip them in some banana ketchup. Banana ketchup is common in the Philippines. It is red and does not taste of bananas, but rather it has a sharp taste, which is kind of, not exactly, but kind of like cocktail sauce that some people use on shrimp. I love the Fire and Water Podcast Network, and I am happy that my penchant for collecting stamps on my passport has finally paid off. And Martin Gray couldn't resist by adding a proper cousin. Welcome, Roger. I agree. Banana ketchup is rather lovely. Captain Entropy piles on. Bat Cousin Gray II, welcome to the conversation and a belated welcome to the reunion. I can testify about lumpia and what I have unsophisticatedly referred to as that red stuff. <laughs> in my first operational assignment in the Air Force, we had a retired cargo pilot and squadron commander working as a defense contractor. In his travels, he had met and married a Filipino lady of genteel upbringing and amazing cooking skills. When we had any kind of unit function where people brought food, it was my job, as the friendly new guy, to ask who was coming and what were they bringing. The savviest folks who had been there the longest would only agree to come if that contractor's wife was bringing her lumpia. And now this is me, Sean, saying my partner is Filipino, so I'm very familiar with Filipino food. The best, well, maybe not the best, but the easiest for white Americans to enjoy is a dish called pancit. And pancit is noodles, vegetables, meat. It's very similar to Chinese lo mein kind of noodle, very, very thin, but that's delicious. I would caution people about eating balut. <laughs> you, you might want to Google balut to see what it is because you will not believe it when I tell you. It is kind of like an egg, but it's an egg that's half formed. So the chicken has started to develop Ew. and you'll eat this. Now, I have not done this yet, and I probably didn't even need to add the yet. But, <laughs> but there's a lot of really, really good Filipino food. So definitely, like if you have a Filipino restaurant or if you have an H Mart or something like that, definitely try it. Lumpia sounds good. I don't know about Balut. Lumpia and Pansit. <laughs> Offensive, right. All right, moving on to our bat fashionista. Liz Ann Oswalt comes to the reunion. Finally, finally, the Joker's daughter has returned to this comic book. The dance, that was kind of fun. And I like seeing Robin and Catgirl work together. Though it is noticeable that she pretends to be all the classic foes, except for the ones she's actually related to. And then Lizanne couldn't resist a fashion comment. Hey, green is my favorite color, but if they're going to wear it badly, I'm going to have to say something. Unless it's a classic costume. I don't complain about Robin's costume that makes you think Christmas tree, but if you're going to wear outfits in public where you look like a Keebler elf, I'm going to have to say something. On to the next story. The spinner. Do I need to say anything about this costume? I need to point out that a grown man put this on and thought it was a good idea. 
Worse, not only did he put it on, but he paid another man to wear this thing and commit crimes so no one would know he was this character. I have seen things on Sesame Street that look less ridiculous than this. I have no words for this costume. You just have to look at the thing and think he should have been named King of Tacky. Lizanne goes on. She does not relent on the spinner. <laughs> I feel bad for Batwoman being stuck in this. Imagine if she goes to a bar. She runs into Black Canary, Hawkwoman, and Wonder Woman, and they ask her who she fought this week, and she has to respond with, the spinner. <laughs> on to the next story my thoughts on don hex artwork superhero comics not to my taste although it is okay on horror comics fair enough lizanne thanks for the comments bat cousin brett michael young says hi bat cousins sorry i'm late i brought a cheese fondue because it's 97 degrees outside it's sure to be a big hit <laughs> and as always i have some turkey hill iced tea just to liven things up i spiked the iced tea with smirnoff to make ice picks I always let out an audible sigh when I see Vince Coletta is inking, the only guy on earth who can drag down JLGL's pencils. But I soldiered on. The Robin story was fun. If a masked girl in leather with a whip showed up halfway through my college chemistry class, I definitely would have switched my major to chemistry with a minor in chemistry. Also, what a coincidence that Robin just happens to be driving by the Kit Kat Club late at night, you know, searching for clues. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that F.U. money, Bruce Wayne does it again with a huge framed portrait of himself in Dick's bedroom. <laughs> Don't forget where those checks come from, chum. We forgot to mention that. That's too funny. <laughs> the Spinner story had a pretty diabolical villain scheme. He even framed Peanut Skilson. Being nicknamed after your favorite food is always cool. Like my friends, Pretzels McDonald, Creme Brulee Wilson, and... Wood grilled prime ribeye with wild mushrooms, potato gratin, and lemon sauce Jones. <laughs> now, I have to interrupt because Brett Michael Young really wrote in fogua sauce, but I know I can't say that correctly. It's F O I E G R A S, fogua, fogua, but I can't say it. So I substitute lemon sauce, but I didn't want to compromise his artistic integrity. So I wanted to point that out. Back to his comments. The Batgirl story was unfortunately tiny. I have to say that the most 70s moment has to be a bunch of thugs trying to fix an election through violence and intimidation and actually facing immediate consequences for their actions. <laughs> Don Heck was the ultimate bait and switch artist of my youth. I remember awesome George Perez JL covers that I'd immediately grab off the rack only to get home and see a book full of Heck art inside. Brutal. And this is Sean. He has just reinstigated the same trauma in me. <laughs> Back to Brett. By the way, Roots is still in Lancaster. My grandma used to get me beef jerky from there when I was a kid. Okay, gotta go. Little cousin Toby just took an errant softball shot down the third baseline to the face and needs the first aid kit. <laughs> See you next reunion. And Brett has done it again because at a real life Myers family reunion, I was hit in the chest with a softball. No, right. over. <laughs> I was calling out for my friend who I brought to the reunion, and it just brings back all those horrible memories. <laughs> Thanks, Brett Michael. <laughs> Finally, Bucky749 stops by to add, Greetings, chums. This is Cousin Bucky saying what a great show. And did you know there are some modern Mego-style figures of the Joker's daughter? Well, look at this gallery post for this very episode, Bucky. If we time it right, we'll get a picture from Dan Greenfield in there. Anyway, myself and Cousin Jeremy are glad to be here. 
We also brought the dogs. We have crash. Uh-oh. The dogs just knocked over Siskoid, who had a plate full of Shag's homemade boneless demon chicken wings. <laughs> Sorry for all the trouble. Next time, we will leave the dogs at home. Hey, dogs are welcome. Don't worry. Dogs are the greatest creation on this earth. Now we're going to delve into our Facebook and Twitter likes, retweets, mentions, smoke signals, everything like that. We're going to start with Facebook and we're going to say happy hello to Billy Dunleavy, Brian Linton, Hershel Mimas, Mike Thomas, Ruth Sutherland, Brian Ng, Max Romero, Dan Greenfield, Michael Best, Keith G. Baker, Mike Jamison, Paul Keen, hey, John Steib. BK on the air, Brian Green, Clinton Robinson. Now we're going to flip over to Twitter and we're going to say hello to our network friends, the Fire and Water Network, Firestorm Fan, Irredeemable Shag, Treasury Comics, Mountain Comics, For All Mankind, SF, and the best podcast in the world, Digest Cast. We're also going to say hello to Bill at Spy Vinyl, Mike Deans, Ward Hill Terry, Joe Burke. Dave's Comic Heroes blog, Liz Ann Oswald, Roger Preeb, Earth 2 Chris, Willie Yarborough, Between the Pages blog, Siskoid, Chris Lydon, Tim Price, the Pod Crasher, Maz at Mazinger1978, Coffee and Comics, Max is pro-choice and anti-Nazi, Michael Thomas, Tall Tower, and finally, Jim Ball. Also on Twitter, I wanted to point out that we've been having a lot of fun over there. We've done some voting about classic TV cars for, and of course we voted for the Batmobile. Chuck Brulette, and I probably got that name wrong, posted this really cool fan-made cover, which incorporated lots of different Batman family members, including Batwoman and the Cat Glasses Catwoman, the, the Pirate Catwoman. And that had a fantastic Catwoman logo. We commented on a super cool Batman family subscription ad. And as we talked about earlier, someone posted a completely unaltered image of the Spinner story with that billboard. And Martin was talking about the two billboards. But the version I found had an unaltered picture with featured a billboard of Twinkies. <laughs> Obviously, I did not do anything. <laughs> To alter that image at all, it was it was an amazing find. All right. Well, thanks, John, for the social media update. Before we sign off, most of our listeners know that running the Fire and Water Podcast Network has gotten more costly over the years. More and more shows were added. So if you're enjoying what you hear on this show or any of the other shows, please consider becoming a patron by going to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. We're not all Bruce Wayne, but any small amount you can give helps defray the cost. And we promise that no money will go towards our regular excursions to poorly named Chinese restaurants or to the Kit Kat Club. That'll do it for the feedback section and for episode nine overall. Thanks again to our guest, Dan Greenfield. Please check out 13thDimension.com. And don't forget, just a couple days ago, we dropped a special episode with our interview of the answer man himself, Bob Rosakis. Thanks for listening. And we hope you'll join us next month when we get a full-length Batgirl adventure our last set of reprints and a real family member will be joining us at the reunion. See you next month, cousins.